history with the podcast guy, Matt King. Hey everybody, thank you for listening to our podcast. Unfortunately, for some, our topics that we talk about may be offensive to some people. The topics that we discuss could also be triggers, and we want you to be aware of that. If you are in need of help, please talk to a professional, a family member, or a friend. We are not medical professionals, and we don't claim to be. We are just two guys with a microphone and a platform. Please listen with discretion. Welcome to This Time in History, guys. It's Matthew, and uh, we're back again for another episode. Today, I am joined but with... Uh, I'm joined by Steve Goldstein. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you, Matt. Good to be here. So tell me, uh, you know, I've, I've wanted to talk to you now. Uh, you know, we were supposed to record last week. That's kind of my fault. Uh, I apologize. It's okay. Um, it worked out good. I'd love to talk to you about uh, your story and, uh, you know, anything that uh, you want to talk about in terms of... Uh, wrestling or anything else uh okay okay yeah go uh, ahead. well i'm a uh, i'm a writer screenwriter and uh, usc film school originally from boston uh i was in california southern cal for a long time i'm currently back in boston um but i'll make it back and anyways uh i've always been a wrestling fan i also teach high school too in inner city and uh, stuff so i'm uh, i deal with the i deal with they love the wrestling by the way uh they're more interested in that than shakespeare but anyways uh i was always a wrestling fan growing up on the east coast with the uh, old wwf which is now the wwe and uh you know bruno sammartino was the champion when i was a little kid Fact, handsome Jimmy Valiant just turns 80 years old today. Shout out to uh, the Boogie Woogie Man. He's uh, one of my childhood favorites. But anyways, I got away from wrestling for a long time with film school and writing other projects. And then back in 2013, in the uh, wonderful world of Facebook, someone contacted me about writing a script on the Von Erich family. And the Von Erich family, for those who don't know, is a very famous Texas wrestling family. The dad... There were uh, six sons, three were world champions, and there's a new generation from Kevin that I will get into, the third generation. And anyways, uh, she got a hold of me, Lisa Renee Andrews, and she thought I was another Steve Goldstein because apparently that's like the Jewish John Smith, that name. And uh, once she, uh, you know, I uh, was on a thread. And uh, one thing about Von Erich fans, they're, they're kind of like deadheads, Grateful Dead fans. They're just immersed in it. You know, they go back to when their grandparents took them to the matches and things and uh, every Saturday night on TV. And uh, it's, a, it, you know, they believe in a curse, a lot of them, you know, because there's been so many deaths and suicides in the family. I don't believe that. But I was on a thread and somebody said, rest in peace, Kevin. And I just happened to see it and said, you know, Kevin's fine. He married. He's the only one left, but he married his high school sweetheart, Pam, living in Hawaii on a compound. His two sons are in professional wrestling. He's got four kids and uh, he's not dead. So, you know, I realize all the others are dead, but, you know, let's be clear. So one thing led to another and Lisa, Renee Andrews, got a hold of me and she said, can you write a script on the family? And I said, yeah, sure. And she said, like a documentary? I said, no, there's been two very well-received documentaries on the Van Eric family. I said, write a, I'll write a feature because not every wrestling, not every wrestler has a great story that lends itself to film, although they all think they do. Uh, but the Von Erichs is a Shakespearean tragedy. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I almost feel guilty saying it's a great story because it's so sad, but from a, uh, you know, from a writing standpoint, thematic, that's a story. You know, there's a few other stories like the Chris Benoit story, but that's a tough one to handle. Hollywood's been uh, throwing that around like a hot potato because kind of tough to make a film about a guy who kills his family. But that's, that's Benoit. But there's not a lot of other great stories. Uh, we'll eliminate all those Hulk Hogan, uh, No Holds Barred type movies that were just, uh, yeah. But anyways, uh, I wrote a script about uh, five, six weeks. And uh, she got a hold of Kevin, Lisa. Uh, and she was good at moving. I always say Lisa was very good at, uh, she was the catalyst. She was good at moving the chains 10 yards, to use a football metaphor. But she kind of lost track of the goal, goal post at the end wanted to get a film made. Uh, I thought she had financing because she came across as a uh, producer, but she was really more of a music publicist type person. 
And uh, she knew people, always name dropping. But uh, anyways, I had friends in the business who I kind of branded myself on social media, which is a double-edged sword social media. You, you meet some interesting people that you can work projects together and you meet some flakes. And until you meet people face to face, I'm an East Coast guy. It's kind of tough to trust anyways, which was in this case was worth it because we were moving the film ahead. I actually set up uh, a financing through a wrestling friend of mine, Steve Cox. And uh, Steve do it to it. Cox was a great guy. He's my brother from another mother. Uh, and he said, uh, he called me and said, well, you wrote the script and you've talked to Kevin. Why aren't you moving ahead on it? I said, uh, money. And he goes, money, is that all? You know, in that Midwestern twang, he goes, I got these uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma oil billionaires and big wrestling fans. And they would love to make uh, a movie based on Von Eric family. I said, great. I said, I will, uh, you know, and, you know, so we got a budget for like 20, 25 million dollars. And uh, Lisa got a little nervous because now the project was being taken out of her hands. But I said, look, we'll get executive producer credit, which is fine. Uh, they want to work on future projects, which is wonderful. And I'll get writing credit because I wrote the script. And, uh, yeah, Lisa started, you know, I started, you know, the problem was she was in Texas. She was in Dallas. I was in L.A., Kevin was in Hawaii. Steve Cox was in Tulsa. We're all spread across the country. That's great with social media. 20 years ago, we wouldn't have been able to do this. But you kind of can't keep track of what everyone's really doing. And you start hearing things through back channels. So Lisa started promoting a few wrestling shows with uh, Kevin's two sons, uh, Marshall and Ross Von Eric. And, uh, you know, they haven't made the big time, but they wrestle. They've won some uh, territorial championships. Uh, but anyway, she got them when TNA had a TV contract back in the day with Dixie Carter. She got them on Slammiversary. So she was moving things, you know, which was great. But then she started, she started promoting a few live shows. There's a place called the Rodeo in Texas, which I have no idea, but it's kind of an arena. And she was booking. And, you know, she knew nothing about, you know, as, as the great Captain Lou Albano used to say, you know, he wouldn't, she wouldn't know a, a wrist lock from a headlock. Oh, from a wrist, a wrist lock from a wrist, wrist watch. And uh, that was the problem. So she was promoting shows. And uh, then I started hearing from people, you know, why is your partner such a, you know, so tough to work with, you know, the B word, right? And I said, look, she's a woman in a male-oriented testosterone-fueled field. Talk to me. You know, I'm a fixer. You know, I wrote the script anyway, so I know what the hell I'm talking about. And, uh, and yeah, I told Lisa just, you know, I, I heard like on some shows, she was pocketing some money and the boys weren't getting paid. Now the rule in wrestling, the boys, the talent in the ring, they get paid first. Everybody gets paid last. Okay. I mean, you pay the boys first. So I think she didn't pay Marshall and Ross on something and Kevin, their dad got upset. And I said, Lisa, I said, professional, you know, I said, we're all in different places, but don't jeopardize a 20 to $25 million film budget production over a couple hundred dollars, you know, money's tight. I get it. But anyways, uh, you know, nothing. My uh, my entertainment attorney likes the script. I've got it registered. But what happened is uh, that was 2013. And this was about to the early to the, uh, let me see, end of 2014. Lisa kind of disappears and uh, nobody knows where she is. She didn't have any money with her or anything because we made sure she, we were going to get an LLC, but she wasn't going to be able to write the checks. Not, you know, it's like you like people, you don't always trust people, man. You know, especially when there's this much money involved. And uh, Lisa disappeared. And uh, I think I text her on like, maybe it was the November, you know, 2014. And uh, she texts me and she, she goes, I'm okay. I'm at a wrestling show. Anyways, uh, this is, you know, last week in November. She disappears around uh, middle of December. Nobody knows where she is. They, she get, they get an anonymous phone call on the day before, I think, New Year's Eve. And uh, they found her body in the trunk of her son's Mustang. Uh, he didn't do it. She was driving the Mustang. And uh, so her body found the trunk of her son's Mustang in a parking lot in a hotel on the wrong side of Dallas. And uh, we think it was drug cartel or something being that close to the border or whatever. Steve Cox and I have had long talks about it. But, uh, you know, somebody execute. it was execution style. So I don't know. I don't know what happened, but everybody pulled back at that point because, uh, you know, I'm a nice Jewish boy from the suburbs. I don't know about murder. You know, I just I write that stuff. I don't experience it for real. So everybody pulled back. 
And uh, people start asking you questions, you know, like, do you know what happened? And I go, no, I do not know what happened. I'm in Los Angeles here looking over my shoulder because I'm not sure why. But after your partner on a film gets murdered, you kind of get a little antsy, you know. So uh, anyways, I uh, I have a friend whose brothers are in the Texas Rangers uh, and he uh, he says it's an unsolved case. And. Uh, you know, they don't, they never found out who did it. Uh, I got a call from a, you know, if Dallas PD had called me, of course, I would have talked to them, but they didn't. A reporter called me from the Dallas paper. He probably wanted to drag her name through the mud. So I said, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah, you know, you, I don't have to talk to a reporter. I'll talk to police, which I never had to. But uh, anyways, everybody pulled back. Film never got made. Uh, my entertainment attorney has it. But it kind of branded me into this uh, wrestling guy again that I can't, you know, because there's a lot of professional wrestlers on Facebook. Uh, the Rock's father, Rocky Johnson, who was a successful wrestler in his own right, WWF World Tag Team Champion. He, uh, somebody in his family, not The Rock, unfortunately, got a hold of me about turning his book into a, a script. But then Rocky died like six months later. I would have liked to have built a pipeline to the rock who wouldn't. But, you know, so uh, that hasn't happened. But I've got other projects I push. I've got an animation script. I write romantic comedies. I evaluate other people's scripts. Uh, I teach in the meantime, you know, stayed safe, no COVID. Uh, I've. I've learned to live out of my, my, you know, home basically over the last couple of years. And Dean, if it wasn't for the phone and the computer and cable TV, I'd be crazy. But I've been busy. And, uh, yeah, so and now I've moved to Revere near the beach uh, four months ago. So that's kind of nice. It's a nice uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Southern Cal. Yeah. Well, I mean, other than wrestling, we got lots to talk about. Um, I, I don't know if uh, for our phone conversation, I told you, but I'm actually a writer myself. OK, no, I don't think you did. And uh, until recently, I was actually working on a um, I was just writing it. Right. Just because nothing else like it exists. Yeah. I, was, I was writing a Vince McMahon biopic. Not, oh, OK. Not that it would ever get out. Uh, well, first, know. first, he would come after you if he heard it, heard it, if he heard of you. He came after us on the Von Erics, but finish your story there. I'll tell you, I can tell you about Vince. He's the godfather. I don't believe he's really retired either. You know, but, um, but you know, with everything that is uh, being speculated with all the stories, uh, I, see, Ever since I was a kid, I, I you know, I, I've, I've been a writer. And uh, the way that I write is uh, I write the ending first and then I, okay. work, ba I work backwards. Kind of like, yeah. like how they did WrestleMania. So I had already written the end of the biopic. I was working backwards. And uh, obviously that's not going to work anymore. So I've actually stopped writing that because, you know, it's still a live story. You don't know how it turns out. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, I, I recently did an interview with uh, another writer, director, um, who's kind of turned me on to short films. Yeah, no, short films are good. See, everybody tells you the same thing, Matt. Nobody reads anymore in Hollywood, so you have to have some kind of visual presentation. Like I, on my animated film right now, it's a high concept thing. could be my Shrek. But a good uh, PR person in Beverly Hills, a friend I know, she said, you got to have a graphic artist who's going to make some of the sketches for you for the characters. It's like a, it's a di diverse, multicultural group of uh, animated characters. They all have their own personalities. But she goes, people want to see it. OK, even though it's a producer worth millions of dollars, you don't want to read anything. And I've known this from film school that nobody likes to read. So that that's the curse of being a writer, because if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage, as we say. But nobody likes to read. So there's your catch 22. So uh, so short films are a good idea. And, you know, and everything's different now with uh, video. You can basically shoot a short film on your phone, you know, if you have the right. Yeah, I guess I, I guess. Yeah. The, 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 the biggest problem is that, uh, you know, the, the short film that I'd be writing is something I'd want to film myself. And then the way I see it in my head, um, I would literally have to probably fucking have a degree in film editing because that's where the magic happens it's in post-production isn't it yeah no film editing is which is a fascinating thing i mean i studied that when i was at film school at sc editing is a uh, some people in fact i have a friend who uh 
If you know who Betty Buckley is, the actress, uh, older woman, Texas, she does a lot of stage work and some TV. Uh, her, her younger brother, Norman Buckley, was an editor in my class at film school. And he turned it into a, a lot of editors go into TV directing afterwards, which is what he does, because, you know, you, you're so used to doing that. Yeah, he used to sit there, you know, and back. Back in the day, we actually had Super 8s. You know, we'd have hanging from the movie holders to cut. And then everything got transferred to video. And it's a lot, yeah, editing's a lot easier now. It's all, uh, you don't touch anything. Back in the day, we in school anyways, we were touching the actual 16 millimeter. And, uh, you know, some people still use 35 millimeter. Uh, but now with video, cutting is all, there's programs for that. And, you know, and you can you can cut till you get the way you like it. I mean, I've, I've learned... You know, all the rules of editing, there's a line, visible lines you're not supposed to cross so you don't confuse people. It's funny, I don't enjoy films the way I used to because now I see the cuts and then the dissolves. And when you're a kid, it's just like, wow, you know, magic. So now, you know, I suppose it's like being a gynecologist takes all the uh, excitement out of it after you do it for a living. Uh, yeah. But anyways, no, the editing shouldn't stop you. I mean, you know, you shoot as much footage as, as you'd like from different angles and stuff because you're not quite sure what you're going to need in the editing room later on. And like you said, that's where the magic happens. It's great if you have too much footage, you know, which is because, you know, it's like writing. You put everything down and then it's not the writing, it's the rewriting. And you end up cutting a lot of stuff out. Same stuff with editing. You just want to, we sat there in editing rooms and, you know, we, we had like a, a right angle shot and we said, oh, why don't we shoot this from the left angle too? Because it would look better now, you know, days later when we're cutting it together. So you shoot extra, you know, different uh, ways, you know, because you're not sure at that point, but you'll have it when you need it. And, uh, and you can always like, cut a shot so you don't need the whole shot so you can make stuff match yeah it's a talent watching editing but if you have a script and you have a way of shooting it and you know then you got to cast it uh yeah you know when you like how long a short film are we talking about here uh, i originally was planning on tw uh, about 23 minutes but yeah. i'm thinking it might be shorter uh, I'm working on something that uh, it, it may or may not be black and white. It may or may not be uh, as close to a silent film as you can get. Um, uh -huh. It's, it's very, uh, it's, per it's, it's about my late brother. Um, oh, okay. Personal thing. Yeah. Well, you know, true, true life stories always sell. Sometimes the sad ones are talked about the Von Erics, same thing. Uh, but yeah, 20 minutes sounds good for a short film. And then, you know, then, then people can watch it. And again, they don't have to read anything. And then eventually they will read when they're interested enough. You know, it's like when you wave a shiny object in front of a kid to get his attention, it's like, okay, now I'll read the script. I'm kind of intrigued. So, you know, the, uh, you gotta, you know, it's funny. A lot of, I mean, there's a lot of successful producers and stuff, but, there are certain jobs where you don't meet stupid people. And I always think you know, there aren't any stupid doctors and there aren't a lot of stupid writers because it's too much work working with the language, but you get a lot of like uh, producers who aren't that bright. Sometimes they're in their 20 somethings that, uh, you know, they, they work their way up. I had a friend from film school, uh, Lance Young, his sister was Lee Taylor Young, who was an actress on Peyton place. And Lance was, uh, Lance was like his brother-in-law was Sidney Scheinfeld from Universal, whatever. And Lance was this arrogant, rich kid in our film class because we had like 24 kids. And, uh, you know, he, I remember he always came to, he always wore no socks, loafers with no socks. He was a real California kid. And he had like the uh, famous family. And when it came time to do a senior film, they picked like three out of our class and the rest of us worked on it together. His got picked and it was young Michelangelo. And it, it had like $20,000 worth of props and budgets that nobody had because he got it from Universal. And it sucked because it was a bad story and he couldn't direct. But it was like, it, was, it looked extensive. You know, it looked like it could play. Anyways, he, uh, he made it in Hollywood. And after we graduated, uh, he was on top 10 hottest young executives back in the back in the 80s i guess it was or the early 90s and he was you know he was on his way to the top then sexual harassment before the me too generation and now nobody hears about lance young anymore uh yeah he's he's not even on my facebook anymore he's like disappeared off the face of the earth so you know the good lord give it the good lord take it so <laughs> <laughs> wow um i've seen like ever since uh, you and I started following each other, I see you. Uh, you're very good with the, the happy birthdays, and you know a, a, a wide range of people. Um, there was one that you put out. I think it was today, actually. Um, 
I, I was wondering if you knew her personally. Um, we, we saw her? Yeah. No, I don't know her personally, but she's been on my page for probably 10 years and a nice, nice woman. And I always remember her from when I was a kid on TV. Uh, I think she's actually 82 today, which I, I didn't put her age. But, uh, but you know, beautiful woman, you know, and uh, I just saw pictures of her from Bonanza with Lauren Green and William Shatner with Star Trek and Don Rickles. I forgot she had a TV series with Don Rickles. No, but, you know, it's funny. Sometimes they... Uh, they send me a nice personal message, and uh, and I have met some of them when I went back to California with uh, Steve Joyner, right? you know, our mutual friend. Yeah, actually, uh, it was nice to meet some of these people in person for the first time, like Sam Quasman, who was the voice of Donald Duck for fifteen years, and uh, Jennifer Nash, who was on some Star Trek. So no, but they send me, you know, sometimes, uh, and sometimes, you know, like Steve Cox, for instance. I uh, I just saw him on Facebook, probably. Let me see, 2009, probably like 12, 13 years ago. And he didn't even have a picture. And uh, I sent him a friend request, which he accepted. And we argued politics because, you know, he's my redneck brother from another mother. But it's like we had different politics. But over the years, he finally said to me, you know, Steve, some of my neighbors are getting that, you know, health care now, Affordable Health Care Act. It's a good idea. I said, yes, it's always a good idea when your neighbors don't die. OK, so, you know, it's, it's good. That's why we live in America. It's uh uh, yeah, it's better than going to war. And uh, anyways, uh, you know, so and then I ended up uh, putting the Von Eric film together with him. And, uh, you know, we became good friends. And I actually lived in Tulsa for 20 months uh, in, when I left L.A. back in 2016. And uh, I rented a house. Dirt, you rent a two bedroom house in Tulsa for six fifty a month. Matt. You know, that was like less than half of my one bedroom apartment in LA and we hung out and he introduced me to some people. I had some adventures with some wrestling friends and uh, you know, and I said to Steve, because he said, you know, he goes, we don't let a lot of people see what's behind the, the curtain. He goes, cause either you're one of the boys or you're a mark and a mark is everybody else. And I said, so what am I, Steve? And I said, I'm not one of the boys, obviously I'm a 5'11, 160 pounds. I'd like to be a manager. Uh, and I said, but I'm not a, yeah, am I a mark? He said, no, he goes, you got your own category. You respect our history. We let you in to see what's behind the scenes. I mean, we all know it's pre-scripted and choreographed, but you know, it, it has a long history. He explained to me going back to Europe, in the 18th century with the traveling carnivals, they had wrestling shows. And, and I knew about Frank Gotch and uh, George Hackenschmidt back in the day and when it was real. And, uh, you know, so it's, uh, you know, it's a fascinating history. And, you know, people say it's fake. And you know, it's, it's, look, when you go to Broadway and see Macbeth, Macbeth doesn't really die, okay? It's a performance. I mean, this is like wrestling. I always say it's a hybrid, unique to anything else. It's half sport. And it's half theater. And if you do it correctly, it's about half and half each. And when I was a little kid turning on for the first time, I couldn't figure it out exactly because I knew it wasn't like boxing. But I couldn't figure out exactly what, you know, if it was, you know, my father explained to me, you know, what it is. And he still, he wasn't a wrestling fan, but he took me to Boston Garden to see the shows a couple of times, which was really cool because he was a great dad. And, uh, you know, so I always enjoyed it. And today, and I'm not going to be like one of those people who say, ah, you know, back in my day, but it's different. Uh, I'm not a, I watch the WWE to see what's going on, but it's not my favorite organization i i like aew because it reminds me of the uh the world championship wrestling back in the uh 90s and 2000s uh you know it, it has a lot of the same retreads one thing about wrestling they never retire yeah rick flair just had his supposedly last match at 73 but now i hear there's another one so you know they just uh, wrestlers just never retire uh but hopefully flair will be careful uh anyways it's um you know so i i got involved and besides it's entertainment i mean what what rock the rock wrestling connection did in the mid 80s was make it mainstream and whether you liked Hulk Hogan or not you know not a great wrestler but a great performer and the same can be said about Ric Flair not the best wrestler in the world but probably the most successful wrestling performer we've ever had you know you put him in a ring with a Bob Backlund or a Jack Briscoe Rick would be crying for his mother because those guys were shooters and those guys really knew how to hurt you but Flair had the more successful career. And, you know, sometimes they settle grudges in the ring because these are big guys and uh, they're strong guys. And they do know, you know, they can stretch you, as the expression goes. They can stretch you and, and hurt you. Uh, you know, but, yeah, I remember, like, uh, 
six NFL football players went into the locker room uh, at a WWE event to mess with the Iron Sheik. And there's six professional football players, and Bruno Sammartino was there. Bruno's already like 60 years old by this point. Bruno and the Iron Sheik was a, an Olympic uh, wrestler from Iran, so he was the real deal. No, those uh, six NFL players had to hobble out of there afterwards, and older Bruno and the Iron Sheik took care of the problem. Everybody wants to mess with professional wrestlers. You shouldn't do that. Uh, they're strong, and they, they can, uh, as my friend Steve Cox showed me, he said, you see this thumb, Steve? He goes, it's not supposed to bend backwards, but it will. <laughs> you know? So uh, he goes, just remember that, grab somebody's thumb and pull it backwards. Uh, and I'm sure that happens in the ring. <laughs> um, as part of your, your uh, research when you were doing, uh, writing the, the movie, um, did you happen to cover, so was it, is it autobiographical? The, yeah, uh, it's autobiographical. I started because if you want to cover the whole Von Erich story, and that's where we talk about it, you got to start with Fritz Von Erich. He was the patriarch of the family. And uh, he, he started out working for Bret Hart's father, Stu Hart, up in uh, Canada. And where you are right now. So, uh, right, you're in Toronto. I don't. So, Toronto, anyways, yeah. yeah, just this was like, I think, even before Stampede Wrestling, because we're talking. Uh, God, I guess we're talking like the 1940s, basically, when, when uh, Fritz started. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyways, uh, uh, Stu, how he's working and he's uh, he's teaming with Waldo Von Erich, who was his kayfabe brother. And I'm a big Waldo Von Erich fan. Not really, not really Von Erich, but he had more championship main events with Bruno Sammartino than anyone else with that Nazi gimmick. Although I heard Waldo was kind of a Nazi in real life. So, you know, he had a lot of memorabilia and I don't think it was just collectible, you know, it was, uh, but Waldo, but anyways, uh, this is how the story starts. Uh, the family is in Texas because, uh, Fritz is a, is a Dallas guy and, uh, he's got his wife, uh, in Helen, I believe. And he has uh, his real name, Fritz, is Jack Adkison. And his oldest son is Jack Adkison Jr., the firstborn. And Fritz is up in uh, Canada doing events with Waldo, his cafe brothers. They're, they're heels. They do all, they both do the Nazi gimmick. It's just funny that with the name Von Erich, it became synonymous with being a, a hero because eventually, originally it was a heel. So, anyways, uh, this is where the story uh, Fritz had been an AWA world champion. Uh, which was a regional title, Midwest or something. So, you know, he had, he was a world champion, Fritz. But uh, his uh, youngest, well, his, his son, the oldest son, I guess there were a few other young ones. Uh, he's six years old, Jack Axon Jr. And I think they're living in a mobile home at the time. And Fritz is up in Canada. They're in Dallas. And Jack Axon Jr. electrocutes himself and dies at six oh. years old. Yeah, I guess with the outside uh, plugs or stuff that, uh, uh, you know, so, so Fritz obviously goes back to Dallas and he tells Waldo, uh, you know, you keep the Von Eric gimmick, you know, but I got to go back home and take care of the family. And he goes back home and, and his oldest son is dead. And uh, Fritz uh, starts, you know, he's actually, so he, he's now with the NWA. He creates his own uh, wrestling organization, world-class championship wrestling, WCCW. And uh, it's part of the NWA. But Fritz is a revolutionary guy. He had number one, he has a lot of you know sons who are championship material. And then he brings in who I call not the Von Erics, but the non Erics. He had a lot of, a lot of good non non Von Eric talent. And uh, he had a great TV show. When they when uh, ESPN syndicated world class in the 80s and they, they went national and it went really big. And at that point, they were getting so big that they were challenging the big three, which was the WWF, NWA, and AWA. They were trying to make it a big four. Uh, the NWA may not have been too happy about that, but Fritz had a really, he was the first person to use music in, the, in his weekly TV show as, as part of, you know, so they, and he had good, he had good standards. He had a partner, Mickey Grant, who's uh, sick. He's on Facebook. And they put together a good show. And, uh, you had uh, you had David Von Erich, who, uh, well, after, okay, the oldest son is dead now at six years old. The next oldest son is Kevin Von Erich, and he's the, uh, he's the high flyer. He's the one that's still alive, and I know Kevin. We've spoken many times. Uh, he's the high flyer. And then you have his next brother, David Von Erich, and David was real interesting because David was like, hey, he was like six foot seven with red hair. Mm -hmm. And not only was he a good wrestler with great size, he had, he was like his father. He had a head for the business. He liked the book, do the angles. Uh, Kevin was not interested in that as much, but David, David was being groomed 
to take the NWA World Heavyweight title from Ric Flair. He, at that point, David was trading the Missouri State Heavyweight title back and forth with Harley Race, which was usually a precursor to the NWA World Heavyweight title held by Ric Flair. Missouri title was very important in those days. So, uh, you know, so he's going to be the next champ. And then that's being set up that way. And uh, so Fritz is, you know, business is great. TV, everything. But then David goes to Japan on a tour in 1984. And unfortunately, he passes away. Uh, they say it was a bacteria, parasitic infection. Don't know exactly because there's all sorts of drug stories that, that haunt the Von Erichs, but parasitic infection is what we heard. There were a lot of other wrestlers on that tour with David. Uh, Chavo Guerrero was there, Bruiser Brody. In fact, Bruiser carried David out of the bathroom where they found him dead. Yeah, because Bruiser was a big guy. Bruiser was another big part of world-class championship wrestling, and he had a tragic ending as well, as did Chris Von Erich, as did Gino Hernandez, as did so many, uh, you know. And then after David died, uh, what happens next? Kerry Von Erich uh, was the next brother in line, and he was, he was probably the most popular one because he was the muscle builder, the modern-day warrior. And he actually... Uh, they moved him up a little quicker than they, they, I guess they should. He took the title from Ric Flair for like 13 days. And the reason uh, he only had it 13 days was because as nice as Kerry was, and he would give you the shirt off his back, he wasn't the most reliable guy. And one thing about being the world heavyweight champion, and it's, it's stopped a lot of guys over the years, you got to be available to work six, sometimes seven nights a week. Ric Flair, love him or hate him, most people love him, is reliable. Not only does he always show up and put on a great show, he makes the he makes his opponent look good, which is an art in itself. A lot of guys don't like to make the other guy look good. Mill Mascaris would come to mind. The old joke: Mill don't job, Mill don't job for nobody. <laughs> uh, uh, but so you know, but so Kerry, he took the title. The Von Erichs had it for like a brief two weeks, and Rick won it back. Uh, the next brother to die was Mike. He was the fourth brother, and Mike wasn't as big as. Uh, as Kevin or David or Kerry, but Mike, his first match was a 10 minute time limit draw on TV with Ric Flair on world championship wrestling. Probably not the right move because then Mike got moved along real fast. And Mike, uh, Kevin swears Mike was as successful as the rest of them, but Mike just looked a little not as imposing. So he's in Israel on a tour. Every time this family goes on tour, this is where the bad stuff happens. He's in Israel with a lot of other wrestlers and he gets toxic shock syndrome, uh, which toxic shock syndrome usually, you know, I remember when, when yeah, it affects women, like, with you know, tampons and stuff, but apparently it can affect guys too. Uh, he caught it as an infection. Uh, so he was in bad shape. They had to take him home. Uh, funny story is, you know, I'm a Jewish guy dealing with all these born again Christians, but the doctor who worked on Mike was uh, Jewish and, uh, you know, Dr. Sutker and uh, his wife, uh, Helen Horowitz Sutker, she got friendly with me on Facebook and she was the only other Jewish person in the picture. So we used to, you know, we always felt like a little like out of, you know, cause I was running a, a Von Eric Facebook page with like 52,000 people. And, uh, you know, you, and I'm dealing with people from another part of the country. And obviously they have different politics and I don't care because I'm not talking politics, but I'm talking about Eric's. But, you know, there's a lot of cultural difference. Like they get on the page and they get antagonistic with each other. And what's when Lisa was running it before me, she would start fighting back. And I said, look, this isn't going to work. I said, this is professional. 52,000 people is nothing to sneeze at. We've got a film in the works. This is like something that's, you know, gets the word out. I said, let me take it over and I'll do it. And, uh, you know, it was just like, you know, I had some weird questions. Like, how do you know so much about the Von Erics? It's like, yeah, I never said I was Steve Von Eric. It's just there's something called the Internet. And basically, if you look at Wikipedia, you can pretty much get the whole story. And then you do a little more research and talk to people. And it's like, that's how writers work. I mean, George Lucas never went into space in his whole life, but, you know, he created Star Wars. It can be done. OK, uh, but people got weird questions. with Writers understand that, uh, you know, if it's not the Bible, we can change stuff when we're writers. If you give me a better reason for it. And I, you know, I said to them, look, if you don't like this scene, because every scene in a script should be like a staircase leading to the next scene. 
And even if you don't, and even if you really like the scene and it doesn't accomplish that function, it would be self-indulgent just to leave it in because you've got some snappy dialogue or some witty banter. It has to advance the plot. And when I was in film school, I would fight that. I said, oh man, this is because I'm a comedian. This is funny dialogue. I'm a comedian who writes a tragic story, but writing's writing. I, you know, so, but I would fight to say, no, no, this is funny. But then years later, I find myself saying what my film professor said, if it doesn't advance the plot, it really doesn't belong there. Put it in a book, because there's a lot of stuff in a book that you can put gratuitous things in to get 300 pages. But a script, you know, 95 to 120 pages, 90 minutes to two hours tops, unless you're James Cameron and you can do the Titanic for three and a half hours, but we're not all James Cameron. So there are, there are formulas to writing, uh, you know, and... You know, you hate to make it all about time, and it's not really about time and page count, but it's a reason these forms work. And if you want to be accepted into the industry, you have to follow the rules because otherwise they think you're an amateur. So you pick people's brains, and that's how I meet a lot of people on Facebook. I have a lot of writer friends, director, producer friends, uh, you know, and uh, they're good contacts, you know, for different things. And then we meet privately. But anyways, uh, David died, uh, then Mike, Mike ends up committing suicide. Uh, you know, it, uh, so he's the second brother dead. Uh, that was alcohol and pills overdose. So now you got David died, and now Mike's the first suicide. Kerry goes to the WWF. Vince takes away his whole identity, the Texas tornado. He gets a little push, wins the Intercontinental title, loses it back to Mr. Perfect. And Kerry knew that his push was over. Now he was just there to collect the paycheck. And he had also lost half his right foot in a motorcycle accident uh, when he was with world class. And, you know, he was pushed back into the ring probably a little quicker than he should have by Fritz. And they used to hide the fact that he lost uh, half his right foot in a motorcycle accident. He used to shower with his boots on in the uh, locker room, which is, you know, that would be just because he didn't want to show it. There's a there's a uh, video floating around of uh, in Vegas where he wrestled Colonel De Beers. And De Beers actually pulled off his prosthetic boot, and he and he, it's not a it's not a work because he uh, was totally surprised, and so was everybody else. So Kerry grabbed the boot from a stunned Colonel De Beers, rolled under the ring, the apron, put the boot back on, jumped back in a room, pinned De Beers, who was very happy that the match was over at this point because he probably needed a drink, and uh, but he was hooked on painkillers. So Kerry was going to go to probably do some time. His marriage was breaking up too. So he's probably going to do a couple years, minimum security, because he's a celebrity, probably down in Texas. Uh, you know, nobody was going to bother him. Who's going to bother a guy that's like 6'2", 260, built like a Greek god. But Kerry ended up putting a shotgun to his chest and uh, killing himself. So that was uh, the second suicide. And yet, Chris, uh, Fritz von Erich is still pushing ahead and he brings in the youngest von Erich, Chris von Erich. And Chris was the run to the litter. Unfortunately, Chris only got to be about 5'7", 140 pounds. The other guys, even Mike von Erich was six feet tall. But, you know, eventually there's that expression, the run to the litter. But Chris wanted to be a wrestler like his big brothers. And they put him in novelty matches where he'd wrestle Percy Pringle, the manager, who later became Paul Bearer, the Undertaker's manager. Uh, and eventually, uh, Chris shot himself to and killed himself. Von Erichs were a very religious family. They actually believed that once you killed yourself, you would just like cross a door and meet your deceased brothers and stuff. You know, it's a, it's a nice story, but I'm not taking <laughs> I'm not taking that risk like the Mercury. I can't afford to take that risk. Uh, so, anyways, uh, after Lisa passed away, people started saying, "Oh, well, you know, the curse of the Von Erichs." I said, "No, it's not the curse of the Von Erichs. I mean, it is kind of weird. It makes a rational like a guy like me stop and think. But no, I don't believe in supernatural ghosts and stuff. It's like bad luck." You know, it's just a lot of bad luck. So the film, you know, it it hasn't gone anywhere, but it did allow me to branch out on other things. Maybe it gets made one day. Somebody else is trying to do a Von Eric film right now. You never know. I don't know. Uh, I wrote a really good script and it covered 50 years of the Von Eric family and it had an uplifting ending because Kevin's sons were wrestling. So, you know, it was it's a good script. Unfortunately, uh, Lisa died. Kevin's had a lot of concussions over the years and He's a little paranoid because the uh, 
publisher of Penthouse back in the day, Bob Buccioni, wrote a hatchet piece to Von Erich, so he doesn't really trust the media. And, uh, you know, it's his, well, he married his high school sweetheart, so she jogs his memory sometimes. Uh, but sometimes he snaps into, like, the old Kevin Von Erich, like this, with this, 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 because he learned from the best, you know, Fritz, David, King Kong, uh, Bruiser Brody, they were all bookers. Uh, but yeah, their influence is still felt to this day. Uh, I remember uh, Chris Adams, who was one of my favorite wrestlers who wrestled with the Von Erics. He was the, his first student was uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin, who was stunning Steve Austin in those days. So they've had a big, uh, you know, it's, it's been, uh, it's a good legacy and I'm glad Kevin is still around. And, uh, you know, I hope the boys do it. They're good. You know, they're big boys. They're good looking boys. Uh, they've just never gotten that big break yet, but they might. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll get that film made one day, you know, but anyways, guess I'm back in the pro wrestling world. So people, you know, it's like, cause you get a lot of posers. First, you got to figure out who's real on Facebook. Then you get a lot of these fanboys who think uh, Hulk Hogan was the greatest wrestler that ever was. It's like study Frank Gotch, study Billy Robinson, uh, Kyle Gotch, uh, you know, so you try to, I try. So anyways, one day somebody said, uh, well, you're a wrestling historian, I guess. I'm a wrestling historian now, like anything else. It's got a history. I mean, if you want to know something, learn its history. It doesn't matter what it is, Hollywood, writing, anything else. Um, have you, uh, I just thought about this now, the, uh, the similarities to the, the Von Erichs and, and the Hearts. Yeah, there's a, uh, you know, wrestling families and Stu Hart and Fritz Von Erich were cut from the same clock. In fact, Fritz worked for Stu, so they actually worked together. And, you know, they had this plan where they could uh, wanted to create their own federation and bring their family in, which is great if you have, like, a lot of sons. I mean, you know, Fritz had 12 children. Uh, no, uh, Stu had, like, 12 children. I don't know said 10, what, 11 boys and one girl. And, and Fritz had all boys. He had six boys. So No, no uh, I, I think it was... Uh... I think it was nine, nine boys, three girls. Right. Okay. Nine boys and three girls, but they, they get a preponderance of males, which like works out really well. Uh, but yeah. And there was, you know, Stu was like going through the dungeon, which a lot of top wrestlers went through like Benoit, Jericho, uh, Pillman, you know, they said, you know, a lot of people quit because, you know, Stu didn't play around. He would stretch you like, like when Hulk Hogan went into wrestling and he went to Hiro Matsuda, a Japanese wrestler, you know, and Hero wanted to see if he was serious. So Hero broke his leg during training. And, you know, two months later, Hulk was back for more training. And to Hero, it seems it seems a brutal way to find out if somebody's serious. But, yeah, they would hurt you to see if you could want to come back. You have to sort of love the pain after a while. And, uh, you know, but, yeah, there's a lot of similarities between the two families. What happened to Owen, uh, it's funny because my entertainment attorney uh, in, in L.A., he actually represented the lawyer who uh, of the company who made the harness. So he told me the story when I met with him up in the offices in Beverly Hills. And he looked at me with a grin, the lawyer, and he goes, you probably think I'm an a-hole. I said, no. He goes, well, let me tell you why I defended the manufacturers. He goes, Vince McMahon never should have used it to lower a person down you know, 40 feet from the rafters. That's not what it was built for, to, to lower a 225 person. So my my client can't be guilty because it wasn't used for the purpose it was intended. I mean, you know, blame Vince for that. So he won and the manufacturer wasn't held liable. No, it was just, uh, it wasn't meant for that purpose. But yeah, there's tragedy in the Hart family as well. Yeah. I, did, I actually did uh, an episode on the anniversary of his passing with um, uh, Hollywood Wade. He does the crime and entertainment podcasts. Yeah. So uh, we, we did that and um you know, there's Owen, and even though he's not a heart by blood, there's Bulldog and 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 Nightheart. You know, um, also um, Dynamite Kid, what, Dynamite Kid, the uh, Dynamite, Dynamite Kid, and also uh, uh, Brett's brother uh, Dean. Right, uh, he passed away as well. Right, I read about that. Yeah, a few years ago. Yeah. He was, uh, yeah, no, there's a lot of tragedy in the thing. The, in the, you know, they, uh, well, look, the Von Erichs, I don't know. I, I think the Hearts were a little bit more, uh, the Von Erichs were, there's a lot of the drug culture. And there's a book, Gary Hart, the old manager, you know, he, uh, he wrote a, like a 500 page book on the whole world-class thing. And, uh, he said, look, I came by one day and there's like a giant 
fishbowl of cocaine and the Von Eric sons are all doing it. And he goes, I told you, you got to cut that stuff out. But it was like the 80s, sex and drugs and rock and roll. And, uh, you know, live fast, die young, leave a, leave a good corpse. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's got a large amount of death in the business in general, pro wrestling. It's kind of like the music industry, you know, 27 Club. Uh, a lot of them die young, a lot of suicides. It, lot it's, of suicides. it's crazy the amount of wrestlers that have died in between 1999 and 2009. Yeah. I, yeah. Don't, have, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it's like, wow, like... Yeah. Owen, Bulldog, uh, uh, Dynamite Kid, I think uh, uh, Bam Bam Bigelow died in that uh, time yeah. period. Um, uh, there's an, one I'm forgetting, I, but there's like there's so many, and it's yeah. just I, something that I I don't know. I just Tommy Rogers, one of the Fantastics, committed suicide. He shot himself. Uh, yeah, in fact, uh, supposedly the story was the last person Tommy called was Kevin Von Erich. I don't know if that was the best person to call because supposedly Kerry called Kevin right before he killed himself too. Yeah. Being the guy who gets called right before your friends and family commit suicide is a great place to be, but yeah, they, uh, you know, I think the steroids mess you up too. Chris Benoit being the ultimate example of that. Uh, yeah, it's just a lot of sadness. That's why guys like Ric Flair who are still collecting a paycheck at 73, pretty amazing. You know, that they're still around. Uh, the smart ones, well, you know, I mean, Roddy Piper was the first to transition into Hollywood, and he was the he was the front he was the forerunner of all that. But then you had like The Rock just took it to another dimension, and uh, yeah, he was smart to do that. The Rock, uh, you know, to guy, uh, and then uh, certain ones have had limited success. Uh, Steve Austin never made the transition to film. I think John Cena has a lot of potential to be. Uh, uh, to be big in, in movies, uh, I like John. I'm a I'm a John Cena mark. He's a New England guy. He's from uh, he's from uh, Massachusetts. So yeah, I like Cena. Cena is like he was that generation. The next generation's Hulk Hogan. Either you love him or hate him. But I like Cena. I never was a Randy Orton fan. I always thought Cena was more fun than Orton. Cena had a lot of. Uh, but yeah, he does well in the movies. Uh, the Rock is just the Rock is amazing because I remember when he first came out as Rocky Maivia. And they booed him. He was a combination of his grandfather, High Chief Peter Maivia, and his father, Rocky Johnson. And he came up with the, the Polynesian garb, and uh, he was a baby face. And everybody booed him. And it was just boring, vanilla bland. And uh, then one day, you know, he had, the, he, had the, he had the shoulders and the muscles. And then one day he does the, the, the arched eyebrow, the Rudy Tooth, the people's champion. And he becomes this heel you just love to hate. And he was amazing because he could just switch back and forth from heel to face, which a lot of guys can't do or it doesn't matter. And, uh, yeah, the Rock, Rock is actually a very good actor. I mean, <clears throat> he's got so many movies that have been done over the last 15 years. And he's good in them. I mean, he does comedy. He does drama. I mean, he he takes. He's not afraid to stretch himself in the role. He does. He just doesn't do action pictures. And uh, Fast and the Furious franchise was great, although he doesn't get along with Vin Diesel, so he won't be back on that show any, on that on that franchise anymore. But John Cena steps in to play in the uh, the last one. So yeah, there's a big pipeline between wrestling and. Uh, and Hollywood because it's all entertainment. And that's the way I look at it from that perspective. So every once in a while you get these, uh, yeah, yeah, I get, you know, you get these film people, although there's a lot of closet wrestling fans in the film business, you know, back in the day, it was like lowbrow, but you know, Cindy Lauper, she changed all that in the eighties with Hulk Hogan, Lou Albano, best manager ever, Captain Lou Albano, amazing, mediocre wrestler, amazing manager so it all you know it's been it's been trending all this way for years so you know would i like to see more territories like in the like in the old days when you used to channel channel surf on saturdays and find continental wrestling you know jerry lawler stuff in tennessee southern things ones you never heard of uh yeah that would be fun but they're coming back i mean i'm sorry ring of honor you know isn't a separate federation anymore but it's been absorbed by aew and like tonight uh, at 10 o'clock uh it used to be it used to be cesaro now he's claudia you pick castagnoli he's going to defend the ring of honor world championship against a Takashita. Uh, I didn't even know there was a Ring of Honor World Championship anymore, but they've, uh, I mean, Tony Khan has the money to go toe to toe with the McMahon family. You know, Ted Turner did fun. The best times were the late 90s with the uh, wrestling wars on, uh, oh, Absolutely. that was, uh, oh, I am just the NWO, 
what best stable D- degeneration X was great till they blew it, but eventually they blew that up. But yeah, the NWO Ted Turner was putting the money in to go against Vince. Those were the best times for t- wrestling fans on television. And uh, I'm hopefully maybe it'll come back a little bit. I hope, you know, well, with new, uh, you know, with triple H now in charge of creative, I think that anything's possible. Um, yeah. I saw SummerSlam. It was, uh, it was all right. I liked it. Um, I definitely can see that uh, for the moment, Vince is not calling the shots. Yeah, you know what I miss the most about professional wrestling, and, and my buddy explained to me why that is. Uh, when I was a kid, I mean, yeah, we all watch the matches, but you know, let's be honest here. After a while, you know, unless it's a real high flying match or something, I mean, how long can you watch The Undertaker or Kane? I'm not a big guy fan in the ring, you know. Because it's, you know, they, you know, for like Danny is gonna be a tombstone pile driver in 10 minutes. And they're not that fun to watch. But what was fun to watch when I was a kid, and they had the same, uh, you know, at least today they try to make the matches a little more competitive. Because when I was a kid, they had like a star versus a jobber. And, you, you know, you just, it was very, maybe every 20 matches you had a surprise, but very infrequently. But the switch was fun. The switch was when a, a baby face turned heel. And vice versa, heel turns babyface, sometimes in the middle of a match, sometimes on the mic, and it takes people by surprise. Like today, I mentioned Jimmy Valiant's 80 years old. When I was a little kid, he came in as handsome Jimmy Valiant. He was a, he was a hero. And, uh, but eventually, you'll never, you'll never get a match with Bruno Sammartino because you're both faces, and that's not the way it matched up. So he turns heel on Chief J Strongbow, and now he's a bad guy. And now he can get championship matches against Bruno. And then he's part of the Valiant Brothers, which became a very successful tag team, much heat. And uh, But they switch. Uh, and then he goes to NWA because the Boogie Woogie Man, lovable guy again. You don't see that much anymore where it's believable. And I have a good friend, Nikita Brezhnikov. He wrote a book when it was real. And, uh, you know, you bought in, you were invested emotionally into the characters. Oh my God, Jimmy Valiant turns heel. Nowadays, it's like, like CM Punk, I use him as an example, CM Punk. He's gone heel to face like 37 times, and I don't even remember what's what because it's just so non-consequential. You have to make the switch in a pivotal moment where something big changes. And as a writer, you would explain that to a writing student. It's plot. The writers on WWE don't impress me. Uh because they're gearing it towards the merchandise, 12-year-old market. That's really where the money's made in the WWE, the, the action figures, the T-shirts, the hats. Uh, it's not about, the, you know, they'll make money at WrestleMania, WrestleMania and SummerSlam, yeah, but that's not really, you know, they need the TV show on every week in order so the kids get excited. And I taught high school, even the high school kids, they were excited. But you can imagine the younger kids, they, they love that stuff. And, you know, they know I'm in the business, so they want to hear about it. But, uh, you know, it's uh, it's uh, yeah, it's got a wide range because it's a morality play. It's good versus evil with athletes. And yeah, sorry, I was just going to ask you uh, as a writer. I mean, what do you think it takes to write for WWE? Well, it's a clicky business. Okay. That's a clicky business. Cause people always ask, gee, I, and you see them on Facebook too. I'd like to write for WWE. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'd like to fly, but you know, it's just like, it, it's, you know, there are people, you can use people who started out early in the business, like Paul Heyman. He was a kid. He was hanging out at all the events. Uh, you know, he would like set up the ring, get the, get coffee for the wrestlers. Eventually he's a kid and he's meeting Lou Albano and the grand wizard and Freddie Blassie. And eventually, you know, he knows he's a uh, Paul Heyman knows he's a, he's a little Jewish kid who put on a lot of weight as an adult, but he's never going to be a professional wrestler if that was ever what he wanted, but he knows he's got a big mouth and he can be a manager. And then with ECW, he becomes like really the head of the company. Uh, you know, he's a visionary. And he works for Vince, and he's happy where he is in WWE. And you need him. He does a lot of work behind the scenes. But since Brock Lesnar really has no mic skills, you have a mouthpiece like uh, like Paul Heyman. And since Roman Reigns has the exact same problem, well, guess what? Now he's the mouthpiece for Roman Reigns instead of uh, Brock Lesnar. So, you know, there's a – but. Yeah, that's a guy who was when he was 16 years old, 15 years old, he was hanging out. And a lot of these other guys on here, that's what they did, too, because eventually you want to like, you know, there was a lot of wrestling training schools. But I know from talking to people, they're not all good. 
you know, so you have to like Johnny Rods. Uh, when I was a little kid, the unpredictable Johnny Rods, he's on Facebook and he's had a successful wrestling training school in the Bronx for years. And he's legit. And uh, Dominic DiNucci had a great wrestling school. Uh, Mick Foley went through there. And then there's everybody, whoever they were in the ring and they think they can run a wrestling school. And there are people who have given their money and nothing came of it. Uh, you know, but you have to, you really have to learn the business. And God knows with social media, you can like, it's like before you go to a restaurant, it's like reading the reviews. Okay. There's plenty of reviews on everybody. I have a nice reputation on here. I'm a straight shooter. Uh, you know, it's like what happened to Lisa was unfortunate. God knows I didn't have anything to do with it, but people said to me, don't beat yourself up over it. You know, you knew something was wrong. You tried to help from, you know, 2000 miles away. And obviously, you know, you did it, but, uh, but that doesn't affect our relationship with you. And that's great because I always, you know, because I, uh, you know, I, reached a bigger audience on here. I remember the old days trying to get a hold of people, sending out query letters to agents and nobody wants to know you. Here you can actually make some decent connections with people, find you have mutual interests and projects. And if, if everybody's on the up and up and there's money involved, it's good because we can all get what we want. And when the pandemic hit, we were all kind of forced to isolate this way. So I didn't miss a beat. I mean, it was kind of nice as long as you got your computer and your phone and uh, you're okay. And yeah, sure. It's nice getting back into the swing of things and meeting people live again, because we, you know, we're humans, we're social creatures by nature, but, uh, but nobody wants to end up dead or on a ventilator. So it was kind of necessary. And, you know, God knows I've had my two vaccines. I got my second booster on Monday, Matt. I'm still wearing a mask in, in, in a few stores because people say there's a little bit of a spike, but, you know, doing the best I can with all of this here and why it became a political issue instead of just a health issue. Craziest thing in the world for this country. It's sort of like never should have been political. I think it became political because it was an election year. Yeah. I think that is the sole reason. Yeah. And uh, you know, it, it, it was big here too uh, uh, because we had, we had the federal election last year. We just had a provincial election, um, which is like a state election for you guys. Yeah. Um, and uh, on October 24th, we're having our municipal election, elects our mayors, city councilors, and school trustees. So I don't know if that's like your midterms. I, I don't know. But uh, yeah, it's a completely political issue. Yeah. Um, they're still talking about it because um, we're it's still... Cool. We're still in we're still in what they call pandemic recovery. Yeah, I guess kind of most of us are at this point. I mean, you know, but look, I survived. I never caught it. I just I have a lot of friends on Facebook who seem to have the same story now. Well, I didn't catch it for two and a half years and I finally did. And uh, they've all been vaccinated and boosted and they stay. Well, it's like the worst cold I've ever had. You know, no sense of taste, sense of smell. I hate it. But uh, they don't even want to put you on Paxlovid. A uh, nurse friend of mine said, if you're younger and healthy, they put the president on it because he's 79. But my friend of mine, nurse, she got it. She goes, yeah, I feel crummy, but they don't want to give me Paxlovid. I just got a bunch of food and drinks and I'll binge watch Netflix for a week and I won't go on a ventilator or go to a hospital and I'll be fine. And so yeah, I just don't feel like being laid up for a week either. So uh, I'm still being careful, but I believe it's real. You know, I'm just, so for me, I'll tell you, uh, in January this past year, uh, I, I got COVID and it yeah. was horrible. Um, so it was really cold uh, the, the week that I, I got it. And um, so the fr it was Friday. Friday, I woke up. I was not feeling well. I didn't know what was wrong, but I went to work. I went to work because I'm, I'm a truck driver. Yeah. Um, and the truck I was using that day happened to have no heat. So it was freezing in the truck and I was just trying to get it done and I was not feeling well. And as soon as I got home, um, I'm trying to remember, I, I, you know what memory of that day is, is kind of spotty. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I had a fall at the end of the day of that day. So, uh, cause I have a bad knee. I need a complete knee replacement on my, okay. my, my right knee. So, um, I remember being helped into the bed. Um, you know, I was still wearing, I took off my jacket, but I was wearing all the rest of my clothes and I was just passing out. 
I was blacking in and out. Like I was freezing, but sweating at the same time. It was really weird. And then, when did you, so when did you figure out it was COVID? So later that night, after I, w- I woke up, I slept for like four hours. I woke yeah. up and uh, my, my wife's like, take, take a COVID test. So I took one and I tested positive. And I don't remember the weekend because yeah. I was like knocked out the whole weekend. Uh, and the, the funny part is, is that um, uh, you, you remember that huge storm? We, we had it here on Ontario. So I, I, I think it got the whole East Coast. Uh, it was January 17th. Uh, yeah, that um, it was a really, really bad storm here. We got like uh, uh, a lot, a lot of snow, uh, more snow than we get like in a single day ever. And um, that was actually my birthday. And uh, like I was out that whole week of work. Uh, now you didn't, you didn't have to, you didn't have to be hospitalized or anything. No. no. Okay. Now, I, I am double vaccinated, but I, okay, I didn't want anyone, you know, see, normally I would ask that, but you know, I never know with people if you're allowed to ask anymore. Of course you, know? you are. Of yeah, course you are. I know. You know what? Honestly, I'll be, I'll be completely honest with you. If I didn't have children, I, I wouldn't be vaccinated. Okay. I, I, I did it for them because I don't want, I'm the one who's going to get it because I brought it home. Yeah. Because I, I work and I, I'm a truck driver and I see hundreds of people a day. Yeah. I'm going to be the one that gets it and brings it yeah. home. Okay. Like, so so that's why I got vaccinated. Yeah. But but I refuse to um, get any more boosters because I just yeah. don't. Yeah. You I know don't what? Point. You can make. Yeah. It's like I don't. You know. Number one, I may go back into because there's a there's a Revere High. I'm in Revere now. It's a nice beach down Massachusetts, and I walked down to the high school and uh, the district offices, and I said, "Well, you know, I had stopped teaching, but I said, you know, it seems like a nice school. I could like sub there." And right away, the low-level secretary goes, "Well, come back in August. This was May uh, when there's like orientation." I said, "No, no, I got a lot of experience. I said, I'm qualified. I know you don't have enough teachers. Why don't you give me your boss?" So, long story short, they gave me the boss. Next day, I'm meeting with the assistant superintendent. Not only am I at Revere High School every day, they give me my own English classes because the original teacher got pregnant, the sub got pregnant. That was my selling card. I can't get pregnant. And uh, you know, so I'm sitting there uh, for three and a half weeks and the kids are fine. I mean, small classes, nice beach town, suburban. And, uh, you know, this was the day right after Uvalde shooting. I went oh. and I started. Nice timing. So and the kids are like, you know, I don't walk in there like gangbusters. But I said, look, you got a lot of questions who I am. I'm this guy, this guy who just walks in with three and a half weeks left. Let me tell you who I am, what I've done. I taught in L.A. Unified inner city. I was the only teacher with a walkie talkie. They made me an administrative liaison. I know how to break up riots. I said that we've we've had weapons in L.A. Luckily, we haven't had a shooting, you know, like Uvalde. But um, just do what I say. I'm a good, I'm a, I know my English, you know, and then, then I do a little Batman stuff on the side and then I oh professional wrestling. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. And yeah, so you need to make them feel calm because let me tell you, these kids between the last two years uh, and look, I've yelled at more children than anybody else as a teacher. And I've, I've had gang bangers and psycho kids and everything, but these days for the most part, they're scared, Matt. They really are. They were out of school for like a couple of years and it, it is a social thing, too. And then they go back and then there's more mass shootings. And they know if a teacher gets shot and killed, it's by accident. You know, they're, you know we're, they're trying to save kids, but they're basically shooting kids like fish in a barrel. And uh, they're nervous. I said, look, I'm very good at what I do. Just do what I tell you to do. We'll be fine. And uh, and if you see a problem anywhere else, just come to my room. I got a nice, had a nice studio room in, in you know basement off the library. I said we'll be okay. He said because I want to go home at the end of the day too. I mean that's my contract I make with the kids. I go look. We all want to go home at the end of the day, have a nice meal, watch a little TV, you know, sports, whatever. Say hello to our parents. You know, we, nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to be stupid. So just like, especially me, most of all, okay, I got, I got responsibilities too, you know. And uh, so it worked out nice. And, you know, I, I got to go back next week for a little, uh, I got to meet and greet some people. There's a film department that I'm looking to get involved in at the school. So, uh, yeah, it's a nice school. And uh, I'm, yeah, I said, I told myself, I wasn't going to be active teaching, but if it's a film position, I might be interested in it because they, they actually have put on some, some movies at the local theater, like two hour features. So uh, it's interesting. So I'm um, seeing what's it. I just happened to 
walking to the right place, right time. Sometimes you can't, uh, you can't beat timing, you know, timing timing is everything in life. So that's working out. Okay. So that's why I got the second booster because I'm going back into a Petri dish next week. Although there's only 20, like two dozen, you know, it's like, it's funny. Some of the kids are still wearing masks and some of them aren't. And I said to the administration, what's the rule? They said, well, it's all optional. I go, yeah, it's all optional. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, if it's all optional, that means there are no rules, okay? So you can wear a mask if you want. You can not wear a mask if you want. If there is a spike, they will let us know in the school. And then I would suggest wearing a mask. But I can't teach all day with a mask on. I mean, it's uh, as a teacher, you're just talking, okay? I mean, it's like you're talking, you're joking, you're lecturing, you you know, disciplining. You can't do that with, with a mask on your face. You can go into Dollar General and buy a dozen items and get out of there and take your mask off. But, you know, so that's why I got the other the booster. I've had my boosters. I've had my vaccination. I don't get a flu shot because I don't believe in a flu shot. I've never had the flu. Okay. So I'm not like a, a shot person. It was just like people didn't say to me for years, get the flu shot. I said, I don't get the flu. I don't know what the flu feels like. Okay. I get a cold every now and then. Uh, but I said, but when I started seeing uh, them running out of morgues and refrigerator trucks and everybody on ventilators i said yeah this one's a little different than the flu okay so uh and probably the reason that you were ultimately okay is because you did get those two vaccinations that uh they probably prevented you from ending up on a ventilator and, and having the wife and kids watch all that stuff you know they'll be yeah you're your family man okay? we got to think of other people which is part of being a grown-ass man i guess right yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> yeah well, I want to thank you so much for coming on and doing this interview with me. It's been so fun, and and uh, hopefully, you know, soon we can do this again. And uh... yeah. you know, we could we we mentioned I think last time about my friend Nikita Brezhnikov, really good guy. Uh, yeah, his, his real name Jack. Okay, it's uh, <laughs> he was a Baltimore PD, and he's got great. He knows more about. Uh, I know a lot about wrestling, but you can show him a picture. And he can tell you, like, but he's basically WWF. He didn't pay much attention to that, but you can show him a picture of a wrestling match and he can tell you what day, what arena, everything about it, which is probably why he was a good Baltimore detective <laughs> because he has that kind of memory for that. So, yeah, we're good friends. And uh, yeah, we can come on together and talk about that and stuff. He's, uh, he can talk a lot about the uh, WWF in the 70s and 80s. And I go in, I go back a little further with the history and stuff. But yeah, we grew up in the same wrestling. He was Baltimore. I was Boston. I'd love that. Yeah, let's do that. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, we'll be in time. Be in touch and thank you again for coming on. Oh, Seriously. yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Man. It's It's been so much fun and uh, thank you. Okay. Well, enjoy the rest of the weekend, brother.